0: Well, good morning, it is good to see you guys. My name is Tim, I'm the pastor here. Love it that you've joined us this morning, excited to dive into God's word with you, what Trevor just read, Mark chapter 10. Uh, If you didn't already, grab a Bible, pull it up on your phone, get God's word in front of you. Uh, We like to say it here at Phoenix Bible Church, the power is not in my word, Uh, the power is in God's word. So we want you to see it so you can take it home with you and and study it during the week and be changed by it as we go from this place. So Mark chapter 10, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are in a series uh, called Who Do You Say That I Am? If you haven't been with us, we've been looking at the life of Jesus to see how his life affects our lives, and what we've seen is is Jesus is addressing some heavy topics recently. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus address marriage and divorce. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we saw Jesus address his priorities and what's really important to him, and therefore what should be important to you, and that we align our priorities with Jesus' priorities, not the other way around. And you're seeing these heavy topics. We're going to see a little bit of that again today. And part of the reason you're seeing that is we look at the life of Jesus and how his life affects our lives. His life is nearing an end. You see, we're at the end of Mark chapter 10. Uh, Mark chapter 11 is the start of the last week of Jesus' life. It's called Passion Week. We start to see this road to Jerusalem, this road to death become more clear and more vivid and more immediate. And so Jesus is on his way to death. We're nearing the end of his life, and he's going to give you some things that are really important but also really uncomfortable. And today's no different. So, I hope you brought a pen and paper or Evernote and your fingers and just start typing notes in because what Jesus is saying is really important. And we're going to look at it today. We're going to talk about things like maneuvering greatness, serving weakness, and mercy. So, we got a lot to get to, right? So, get ready. Our title, if you do take notes, is Majesty and Mercy. Majesty and Mercy. Look at our text again, verse 32. Our first point is maneuvering for majesty. Verse 32, we see Jesus is on a road. He's going to Jerusalem. He's followed by other people. He has disciples and followers, but he pulls aside the 12, and he begins to tell them what's going to happen to him. And what he does is he begins to explain his death. And this isn't the first time Jesus does this. It's actually the third time in three chapters. Jesus explains, hey, we're on a road to Jerusalem. Here's what is going to happen at the end of that road. Here's what's going to happen is I die and, and rise again. And this is the third time in three chapters Jesus is trying to drive this point home. But because he's nearing the death, he gives us more detail. All right, look at verse 33 and 34. He says specifically, I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. That's the Jewish leaders of the day, the religious leaders of the day. But he also, and this is unique to this account, he says, I'm also gonna be delivered over to the Gentiles. That's the irreligious people, that's the Roman officials. So Jesus is up against it, right? He's gonna be delivered over to the Jewish leaders and religious leaders, but he's also gonna be delivered over to the Roman officials and to the irreligious leaders. Like everybody is out to get Jesus, he's going to die at their hands. But he's not just going to die, he's going to be humiliated. Verse 34, he says, I'm going to be mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed. You see, here's what we often don't think about, we often don't talk about in these kind of passages and moments. is We often see suffering on the horizon, and we run away from that, Right? Suffering's coming down the pipe for us. I'm gonna go this way, not that way. What does Jesus do? He's walking toward it, literally. Mark says it this way He says the, the, the disciples, they're following him, he's ahead of them. It's like he can't wait to get to the suffering, like, bring it on. Just reflect on the courage of Jesus. Fully man, yeah, fully God, but fully man, and he's walking straight into suffering out of love for you and and me, out of a desire to pay for your sin, to be killed. Did he wanna be killed? No, but did he wanna kill your sin? Yes, and so today, if you struggle with sin, if you're a new believer in Jesus and you're starting to wrestle with sin, if you've grown up with Jesus and were born in a pew and you've always kinda had cycles of sin in your life, Jesus loves you so much. He doesn't want the pain just for pain's sake. He wants the pain, he wants the death, death for your sake, because he loves you. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been, he, he loves you, and he walks into suffering for you. That's the picture as Jesus walks down this road with his disciples, as he explains his death. So that's Jesus' approach to his last week of life. What's the disciples' approach to his last week of life? Like, spoiler alert, it's a little bit different than Jesus's. Right, look at it with me. Verse 35, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, earlier, James and John are called the sons of thunder. They're not professional wrestlers, though. would <laughs> be good names. Um, but they're two of Jesus' closest disciples. Like there's the 12, and then there's like the inner three, the inner circle. James and John are a part of that. And it says they come up to Jesus and say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever We ask of you. So they do what your kids do when they really want something, right? They do, parents, you've heard this before, like, mom, dad, I have a question. But before I ask it, you have to promise to say yes. Now, parents, I don't know, I have three kids. I don't know what you do and how you respond to that question. Like, I don't know if you say to them, like, hey, let's just turn around and try that again right? Hey, Or maybe some of you parents, you're just like, no. Whatever the question is, like the answer is no. Like go clean your room. Like I don't know what your response is. My response is that at times as a parent. What is Jesus's response? Let's look at it. Verse 36. He says to them, what do you want me to do for you? You ever not pray because you're afraid of saying something wrong? You ever do that? You ever not pray because you think you'll say something silly? Because you'll you'll come off wrong to like a holy God and you're just a finite person. and like I don't know if I can just talk to God. Like what if I screw this thing up? Listen, this should take away that fear, right? You see the kindness of Jesus here? He could have said in this moment how dare you demand something of me i came to demand from you your whole life how dare you demand something of me i mean hey disciples like hebrew school dropouts fishermen tax collectors that's who these guys are james and john like why don't you go back and study your old testament prophecy brush up on that then come back and we can restart this conversation Jesus had every right to say that, but does he know in his kindness and in his grace, he listens, he entertains their silly request, and he responds, what do you want me to do for you? If you ever were scared to pray because you thought, maybe I'll say something wrong, maybe I won't get it right, listen, Jesus graciously listens to you. He responds, even to the silliest questions. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. New to Jesus, new to the church, the beauty of the gospel is not you having the right words. It's not you having the right formula. It's about having the right Jesus, that he was your righteousness in his life. He spoke all the right words on your behalf. He did all the right deeds on your behalf. He died in your place in his righteousness on your behalf. He rose again in righteousness. He did it the right way. So that you could come to Jesus, you could come in prayer to Jesus, even with the silliest request, and he doesn't look at you and think, well, that's not right. No, he, he knows you're not right. That's why he came. I'm right. I'm going to listen. What do you want me to do for you? This is the grace of, of Jesus. This is the kindness of our Savior. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what makes, makes Christianity different from every other religion the grace of Jesus. We see that here in this moment. And they do have a ridiculous request. We see it. Verse 37, they say to him, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Now, just circle back. Remember what Jesus just got through explaining in more detail than ever, if they're ever going to get it. It's the third time in three chapters he's telling them, hey, here's what's going to happen. Here's how I'm going to die. If they're ever going to get it, he's on a road literally to his death. You can see they're going to Jerusalem. This is going to happen right before the last week of his life. If they're ever going to get it, this would be the time. Jesus is going to die. But they don't get it. How do we know? Because they're on Amazon looking for thrones and thinking like, hey, James, like, you should get the bronze one. It would look really good on Jesus' left. No, I kind of like the silver one. No, that one's good for Jesus' right. He'll probably have the gold one. I want this. Can I get my name engraved on? And like just scrolling through Amazon looking for their customized throne. If you ever were going to get it, you'd think they'd get it now, right before the last week of Jesus' life. But they, but they don't. But again, we go back to the grace of Jesus. What does Jesus do? Does he, does he just rebuke them and say, you guys are silly. I'm out of here. I should have picked a different team. I knew it. Fishermen and tax Like, what was I thinking? He doesn't do that. He graciously responds and he teaches them and he teaches you. What does he teach us? Verse 38. Look at the verse. Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus refers to cup. He refers to baptism. That's a reference to God's wrath for sin. We see that in the Old Testament, but what we see in the New Testament is that God doesn't bring wrath for sin, he bears it on the cross, like Jesus gives of himself. He, he bears the wrath. He takes the cup. He takes the baptism of wrath for sin upon himself, and that's what he keeps explaining to them, like, hey, this is what I came to do. This is what we're on the road walking towards is my death to pay for sin. That's what he's here for, to take upon the wrath of God, not to bring it on you, though you deserve it for your sin, but to take it upon himself. So that's where Jesus is headed, and it is glorious, right? The cross is glorious. That's why we put it on top of churches. That's why we tattoo it to our forearm. That's why we wear a necklace that's a cross. It's a glorious moment, but not the kind of glory that James and John are looking for, right? You see, here's the irony of their question. There's going to be a person on the right hand of Jesus and the left hand of Jesus in his most glorious moment, except they're going to be criminals on crosses hanging right there next to Jesus. And so Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Like, are you able to do that? Are you able to take on the wrath of God for the sin of mankind? Are you able to do that? And again, they just keep surprising us. James and John, the sons of thunder Their response is brief, but it's bold. Verse 39, look at the verse. They say to him, we are able. Jesus, we got this. I love it in the message translation. It says their response is, sure, why not? (laughs) Hey, take on the wrath of of, of God for for sin? Yeah, sure, Jesus, we can handle that. And Jesus, again, teaches them graciously. He says, you know, the cup I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Jesus says, you're going to suffer. I actually, you, you will suffer. If you follow me, you will suffer. And we, we read on in the book of Acts, they, they do suffer. And if you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. There is blessing, but there's also battle. But with Jesus, there's blessing in the battle. You will suffer. He will refine you through it. He'll teach you through it. He'll be good to you through it. He'll be kind to you through it. But you will suffer as a Christian. They go on to suffer. And so Jesus says, Hey, some of this cup, some of this wrath, like some of this suffering, you are going to get. Verse 40 But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those whom it has been prepared. Jesus says, listen, my kingdom, it's not up for grabs. There's no jockeying for position in my kingdom. There's no maneuvering for majesty in my kingdom. Like, I know culture works like that, but my kingdom, it works a little bit differently. Like, this has already been decided, planned for, prepared. Like, I decide this. God the Father decides who's at my right or left. You don't get to jockey for position that way. That's not how this works. And they are doing what many of us do in our careers. They're trying to squeeze in that promotion conversation with the boss before he leaves for the day. They they know something's about to happen. We are nearing the end. And they're like, James and John are like, man, we gotta secure our future. Like, who's gonna sit at the right or the left? Like, bronze or silver throne? Like, which one is it gonna be? And that's what they're doing. Now, the other disciples, they start to see this. Look at verse 41, rather. It says, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They're not happy about this. Now, Mark doesn't tell us why. We can just imagine. Maybe they thought, why didn't we do that? Like how you thought when somebody else squeezed in that conversation with the boss about the promotion, you thought, I was just about to walk in his office. Like, why didn't I do that? Why'd he beat me to the punch? And the other 10, maybe they're thinking, like, they beat us to the punch. Like, what about there's only two other thrones? Like, what about our thrones? Like, we're probably gonna be sitting on the back row. Like, we want a VIP. And they're indignant and they're angry. And maybe that's why. Maybe it was just because they thought, come on, guys. The 12, like we were on a team, we were supposed to be unified, and you guys are going behind our back, jockeying for position, and trying to climb a ladder without us? That's not a great way to build a friendship, amen? So one way or another, they're they're mad, they're indignant. But before we bash the disciples, because we could, right? Before we bash them, here's the primary question today. As we read scripture, and anytime you read scripture, it's not, how how did they miss it? How could they just not see the kingdom of Jesus and God in the flesh is right before How did they miss? Like third time in three chapters, he's explaining his death. Like, how did they miss this? Like, what's wrong with you people? Like, how could you not get this together? That's not the primary question before us today, is it? The primary question before us today is not how did they miss it out there, but how do we miss it in here? Not how did they miss it back then, but how do we miss it today? It's just like when you watch a, a movie or read a good book, like, you, you see the characters doing things, and, and you begin to say, like, man, look at them doing that. They're really killing it right there. You begin to say, like, wow, how did they miss that? And But you don't just stop there. You think, how would I do that if I was in their shoes? Like, What would I do? Uh, My family and I, we just did this. We watched the movie Aladdin. And we're watching the movie Aladdin Aladdin as a family. And I'm watching it. And I'm thinking, like, Aladdin, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? But then I'm thinking, like, what if I was in that picture? Like, what would I do? And what if I had three wishes? And what would I ask? And I thought, well, I already have the Indian princess. It's my wife, Right? I already have the Indian Prince, I would think about something else, because I already got, like, what else would I ask for, and I put myself in the character's shoes, that's what you do with a good book, or a good movie, you put yourself in their shoes, that's what you do with the Bible, that's what you do here, you don't, if you're focusing just like the disciples, they're dumb, they're idiots, like, how, turn it back on yourself, how do I respond, how would I have I responded if I was there, how do I respond now, what am I missing, so question, you're taking notes, you want to write this down. How am I, in my life today, maneuvering for majesty? What area in my life am I doing what the disciples are doing? And some of you, your first thought may come to your mind, well, Tim, they were looking for a throne, like I'm not looking to sit up on a throne. I just want to live a good life, like make some money, like serve other people, just kind of, I'm not looking for a throne, But again, put it on yourself, how do you maneuver from majesty in your day? I think there's lots of ways practically. I think one of them is we manipulate situations to get ahead versus trusting the process and trusting God. We think, God, maybe you're not good. I mean, I know we sing about that all the time, but I don't know if you're actually good. So in my job, like you may not have, if it's good for me, like to get this promotion, you may not actually want that for me. So I'm going to go around the process and around you, and I'm going to maneuver for majesty in that way. Maybe you do that. Maybe you consume yourself with worry and politics, like politics in our country, And you think, well, I'm going to get online and I'm going to post about this and just wait till they hear what I have to say about this instead of praying for our president, for our government. Maybe you consume yourself, parents, with worry about your kids and what kind of school they're going to get into and middle school or what high school or that piano practice. They didn't practice again. Maybe we should just drop them out of piano. But then, like, what if they don't get a scholarship and what if they don't get married and what if they're... (laughs) And maybe you consume yourself with with worry instead of saturating the success of your kids in prayer. And you maneuver for majesty. Maybe you only talk, but you never listen. Maybe you only pre-plan what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and you never ask for feedback, wise counsel. You just come to people after the fact, like, here's what I'm doing. Here's how I'm going to do it. And you just want people to affirm you, like, whatever you ask, Jesus, just do what I say. And you're maneuvering for majesty. Maybe you focus only on what you offer and bring to the table instead of areas you need to grow. Uh, constantly. Your focus in life as you're around uh, other people in social circles at your job, you're just looking, how come nobody appreciates me? How come they don't realize what they have in me? How come they don't know my gifts and talents? How come nobody affirms me? And instead of looking at like, yeah, you got some gifts and talents, but how do you need to grow with humility? What do I need to still grow in my marriage, at work, in my relationships? You just look at your gifts and talents, and how come nobody else appreciates them? And you maneuver for majesty. We all do this. And so we have to look at how do we do this, not just how the disciples do this. How do you do this? Look at the way Jesus responds. Verse 42, it says, And Jesus calls them to him and says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Jesus is about to make a statement of culture for his kingdom. All right, this is the equivalent in your family. You say, hey, in the Birdwell house, this is the way we do it. Hey, you look at your spouse, hey, this is how we roll. You look at your kids, this is how we're going to live life. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, this is what's going to define Christianity. This is going to be our calling card. It is, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Notice Jesus raises the stakes. He says, you want to be great, you be a servant. You want to be first, you be a slave, do loss. You be the slave of all. That's the calling card of Christians. That's the statement of culture describing the kingdom of God. Jesus says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see Jesus teach yet again about greatness equals serving. Notice he doesn't rebuke greatness. He just redefines it. Now, if you've been with us, you, you know this. We, we've talked about this idea, of greatness equals serving. And it's not because I formulated a topical series where we would hit this over and over because I thought, man, these people do not serve. And we need more kids ministry workers and musicians and greeters and let's, Let's put together a message series on greatness equals serving. Like, they'll really appreciate that, and they need to grow in that. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. This isn't my series. This is Jesus' series. And I counted four out of the last five Sundays we've talked about this. Anybody been here the last few weeks and remember this? It seems like we're recycling the same thing, like greatness equals serving. Okay, Jesus, greatness equals serving. Not rebuking greatness, we're just redefining it and we should serve. And maybe some of you right now, you're starting to feel guilty. Because again, okay, I need to serve and I haven't signed up to serve yet. And like, here we go again. And you need to know, as Jesus reiterates, greatness equals serving, greatness equals serving. He never includes guilt as a part of that process. He's talking about it as, as an exercise, and greatness, that's serving, right? so even as we hear it again, that should be the posture of our heart. Jesus, how do we exercise greatness like you want us to exercise greatness? How do we serve? And the, the amazing thing about Jesus is he doesn't just preach this message. He presents a model of this message, right? Verse 45, he says, hey, if you're feeling guilty about this, if you think it's all on you, no, I did this. Like I paid your ransom, my life and my death were defined, calling card, marked by service, by sacrificial service, that you were held hostage by your sin, and he paid the ransom. He made the payment to set you free from that sin, past, present, future, the sins that you remember, the sins that you have forgotten. And Jesus says, hey, my whole life was service, but it didn't stop when I died. It actually culminated in my death and climaxed in my death when I paid your ransom to buy you out of sin. And I didn't just give something else, I gave myself. And Jesus says, hey, this is what it's all about. There's greatness. The most glorious moment for Jesus was his death, his sacrificial death for you. Greatness equals service." Now, why does Jesus need to repeat this so much? Why do we keep going back to this place? Like, four of the last five weeks, really one of the weeks was on marriage and divorce, and if we got greatness equal serving, we wouldn't need to debate divorce as much, right? Today, by the end of today, we're talking about greatness equal serving. It's going to be six weeks in a row we're talking about. Why do we need to repeat this so much? Why does Jesus repeat this so much? Because it's hard, right? Because we need to hear it. Greatness equals serving. But, like, then you go try to serve your family later today. And then you go try to serve in the church. And you're like, people are kind of awkward and I'm awkward. And, like, (laughs) serving is hard. Like, it doesn't seem great. And so Jesus repeats it. And as I looked at this this week and just realized, hey, here we are again. I thought, you know, I could get up here today and just be like, hey, you know, Pleasure seeking, self indulgence. Like, I know it seems great, but it's not. Serving is. And you would be like, Shh, okay, Pastor. I mean, like, I'm pretty sure, like, Krispy Kreme donuts, they don't taste bad. Like, I mean, just all these, like, going to the beach and just laying out for a few hours, getting in the water and having people bring me drinks, like, that's kind of nice. That seems great. I mean, like, sex outside of marriage, like, Tim. Like, I don't know if you realize, but like, that's kind of fun. And like self-indulgence is kind of fun and, and compared to self-sacrifice, I don't know which one is greater, Tim. And I could just try to convince you like, no, see, serving is greater than sex outside of marriage and donuts and drinks by the pool. Like serving is greater. But, but here's the reality. I, I'm not just a pastor. I'm a person. And I know self-indulgence is great. It's fun. joyful. Here's the reality. It is joyful. It may make you happy for a little while. It may bring some happiness, pleasure seeking, self-indulgence, making it about me. It seemed like it'd be kind of nice, but it won't last. We all know this. We know this from the Bible. We know this from culture. Uh, There was an article in the New York Times several years ago that talked about this. It was called Happiness 101. And it talked about the hedonic treadmill, like pleasure-seeking. On this treadmill, hedonic treadmill, like always pursuing the next pleasure. And not just the next pleasure, but a better pleasure because once you've had this pleasure, you think, well, that's kind of boring. I'm kind of numb to that. so I want to go to the, the next pleasure. Like once I've had sex with these people and then we'll just, they're kind of boring. I'll go have sex with these people. Like once I've had this food and this drink and this abundance, like then I'll go to something else because we get kind of numb to pleasure, don't we? And we just always have to top it. And it's like a treadmill and you're on that hedonic treadmill and you're not going anywhere. You're on a treadmill and you're looking for that next and better pleasure. And the article talked about that, and you're never satisfied, and that's why that the most rich and famous people in our world end up on magazines and Yahoo News and on your Twitter feed, depression, check themselves into a hospital. Addiction, yet again, suicide. And we always look at that and we think, How? Like, you have so much. Like, why? How could you be depressed, and how could you be suicidal, and how could you be addicted? Because they're running like crazy on a treadmill of hedonism that never satisfies, and we do that, and the article talked about, hey, actually, the best way to happiness and the best way to increase your happiness is to increase your selfless acts of service not a Christian, just culturally, looking at our cultural landscape and be like, hey, this is true. Serving equals greatness. Serving brings joy. Do other things bring joy? For a moment, but it won't last, and it will end with pain. Serving's not like that. Now, do you have to practice it? Do you have to get in a rhythm of it? Do you have to experience the greatness and exercise that greatness over and over and over and remind yourself when you're doing something nobody else can see? That God sees that and he has your approval in his hands and you don't have to prove yourself to other people. You have God of the universe approving you in the midst of your service and the joy of that that lasts for eternity. And pleasure seeking and self-indulgence, it can't compete with that. So Jesus says greatness, it equals serving. So maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've heard this in your life. Maybe you've heard this for the last six weeks. You need to hear it again. And you need to believe it. And you need to ask yourself, do I believe Jesus and his method of greatness, his philosophy of greatness? Or will I continue in my self-indulgence and therefore my emptiness and my pain? Jesus is not just teaching us the right way to live, but the best way. Do you believe that? It's not just serve because you ought to, because we got lots of needs at the church and your family do some chores, supposed to do that. Good Christian, it's not just the right way. It's the best way to live. So how do we do it? Look at verse 46. Our second point, crying out for mercy. Verse 46, it says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Mercy, it's the, the help given by someone who has the authority to punish you, but instead they have compassion on you. That's what he cries out for, compassion. Jesus of Nazareth, I've heard about you. You're a powerful person, the coming Messiah. You could punish me, but instead I cry out for mercy, have compassion, help me. That's what this man cries out for. It says, and many rebuked him, telling him, Be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Recognize that question? Same one he asked his disciples. His disciples, his closest followers, his crew, the VIP section. Asked the same question to the guy he just met. Listen, God's grace is for you if you were born in a pew. God's grace is the same for you if this is your first Sunday. That's the kindness of God. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Notice the power in crying out for mercy rather than maneuvering for majesty. What happens? Verse 52, it says, your faith has made you well. That this man, at one point, he was blind, but now he can see. At one point, this man was on the The side of the road, excluded from everybody else, being told to be silent and rebuked. At one point, that was this man. At the end of verse 52, what is he doing? He's following Jesus on the way. He was blind. Now he can see. He was excluded on the side of the road, being rebuked and being told to shut up. Now he's on the road with the crew, with the team, following Jesus. Now he's included. Notice the power of crying out for mercy instead of maneuvering for majesty. Jesus says, your faith, it's made you well. It changes his life. Now, as I read that, I thought, what faith? Where's the faith? Like, did he he recite some verses somewhere in there? He must have made some sacrifices on the side or done some good deeds while nobody was looking. He must have attended church a few times. Like, maybe, is it in the footnotes? Where's the faith? And you read back through it and you just see the only thing this man did was cry out for mercy. He, He cried out twice. He cried out louder and louder. He sprang up. He was desperate before God for help. He knew Jesus was someone who could punish him, had all the authority to do so, and he said, hey, would you instead of punishing me, would you have compassion? Would you help me? That's all he did. In verse 52, that changes his whole life. Your faith has made you well. He cries out for mercy. There's power in that. There's power in that for him. There's power in that in your life see, here's what I know. Some of you, what's going to take you out, what's going to prevent you from true greatness, here, here it is, you ready? It's not your weakness. It's not that deep brokenness in your life. What's going to prevent you from true greatness, as Jesus describes it, it's not your weakness, it's your unwillingness to admit it. I mean, it's not that, that struggle in your marriage that nobody knows about. It's not that private and personal sin that you don't share with anybody else. It's not your, your brokenness that's going to destroy you or prevent you from true greatness. It's not those things. It's your unwillingness to acknowledge those things, to admit those things, to in the midst of those things. See, Jesus, I need help. And cry out for mercy. And when other people are like, that's a little weird, and you're raising your hands a little bit too much in worship, and why are you kneeling? Like, What, what is going on? And you're just like, no, i got to cry out more like this man did. Because what's going to take you out is not your weakness, but your unwillingness to admit that you have it. And so some of you in your problem, in your marriage that you're going through right now, you're thinking, man, I got some brokenness in my marriage. Like things aren't going well, and we need to let that brokenness rise. We need to admit it. But you don't. You think, we'll just go to the barbecue, and just everybody will forget about this, and we can just move on. Our brokenness will probably just go away, imaginary. And you don't admit it, and you don't cry out for mercy. And therefore, your your faith doesn't make you well. You don't get wholeness. You don't get true greatness that Jesus wants to give you. And some of you are thinking, in, in my relationships, there's conflict. And Tim, you're talking about serving, like, again. Like, all I do is serve. Like, I serve my spouse, my kids, my boss. And it, it never stops. Like, and you want me to serve more? And, like, your impatience And your anger is welling up inside of you. And you need some help with that. And you need some mercy in the midst of that. But instead of crying out for it, instead of acknowledging it before God and others, you think, I'll just just keep holding on to that, and maybe it will just go away. And I don't want to admit that. And what if people knew I had problems and I wasn't okay? And what if I did kneel down right there? then People would look at me. What if I did come to the altar? like people People would know. What if I filled out a Connect card and put a prayer request in, like, Somebody would know. What if I grab somebody and ask for prayer after the service? Like, somebody would know I'm not okay. Some of you, sexually, you think, man, it's just the cultural pressure. It just seems like the magazines, the movies, the, the billboards, like the way people talk and swiping right and all these things. Like, it's just all working against me. And it just seems like for a guy or for a girl, this is just what you do is lust. This is just what you do is fantasize. This is just what you do is commit adultery and get divorced. This is just what you do. And some of you are there today. Even just a hint of that. And you sense some of that brokenness. And listen, what's going to keep you from true greatness and wellness and being healed, it's not that brokenness by itself. It's your unwillingness to let it rise. It's your refusal to give up the maneuvering and the posturing and the jockeying for position. Just say like this, man, man, Jesus, I need you. Cry a little louder. I, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Like, whatever it takes, like, I'm broken, and I need you. Listen, we've already said it. Jesus is kind. Jesus is gracious. He will listen to your brokenness. And let me just tell you, he won't be shocked by it because he already knows it. You you think you're hiding it from him. He already, he's God, right? He knows it. He sees it. Stop maneuvering. Surrender that. And just cry out for mercy. Mercy. He sees it already. He won't be shocked by it. He won't reject you. He will listen to the most ridiculous, silly brokenness, like you went there again, like you did that again. He'll listen, and he'll respond, and he'll teach you, and he won't let you stay in your sin. He'll teach you, and he'll challenge you, and he'll draw you out of your sin to himself. He'll heal you. Your faith Crying out for mercy, your faith will make you well. Your faith will allow you to experience true greatness. But you gotta let it rise. You gotta admit it. So the question as we close is this Where are you maneuvering for majesty instead of crying out for mercy? Where do you need to ask for help from God and from others? Where do you need to go to other people? This is what a local church should be. A community of faith should be. Where do you need to go to somebody else today? This is a hospital for hurting people, right? Everybody in here, if you didn't know, everybody in here is broken. You think, "Well, they dress nice. They look different than me. Their marriage is probably okay." We're all a little less spiritual than we look. Right? Everybody in here is broken. This is a hospital for hurting people. Maybe today you need to go to somebody else and say, "Hey, I got some wor- some worry in my life. Can you help me with that? Can we meet for coffee?" I got some brokenness in my relationship. Not sure how to navigate this. Can we talk on the phone this week? Hey, when we're sitting out at the barbecue, can we just grab a picnic table? Can we go for a walk? Can we talk about this? And you seek wise counsel. You cry out for for mercy. That's where the power is. That's where true greatness resides. And Jesus is calling you to that place. He has you here, not by accident, but to be here today today. Before him, before others, to cry out for mercy in the midst of your brokenness because he can heal you. He can make you great the way he defines greatness. But you gotta admit it. You gotta bring it before God and bring it before others. You can't keep pushing it down. You gotta let it rise. He's gracious, He's good, He's kind. He will lead you to repentance, to life transformation but you've got to come to him and respond. Let's pray and do that now. Father, I want to thank you for this moment. I pray that we would see just these two paths of majesty and mercy and see while it may seem like majesty has the power, it doesn't. Mercy does. And God, that you are good. In this moment, in our brokenness, you are good. You are glorious. You are kind. You are just. And as we lift up prayers to you and thoughts to you, if we do bow a head and drop to a knee, if we do come to an altar, that that is completely expected because we're broken people in need of the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why you came. So God, I pray that we wouldn't try to hide our need and hide our weakness, but we would let it rise to the surface because that's where we find healing. I pray for these men and women. I pray that they would respond. I pray that we would respond together now in the power in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. amen.